This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Mysteries in the Crucible. Mapping F-20 on Earth. Glimpses of the USA. And the Fen Treasure. Welcome, dear listeners, to the realm of God's Forge, where battles between spellcasters unfold in a fast pace. Spellcasting battles, huh? So it's like a magical food fight, but with lightning bolts instead of mashed potatoes? Well, uh, not exactly. God's Forge is all about lightning-quick spellcraft. Roll your dice, tweak the results, and avail your best card. Wait, tweaking dice? Is that even legal? I mean, I've been in trouble for less. Uh, yes, it's all above board. And here's the twist. Simultaneous play. Picture this. Everyone's rolling dice, crafting spells, and launching attack in one synchronized frenzy. Simultaneous play, you say? Like a mystical mosh pit where everyone's tossing spells like confetti or a magical flash mob, but instead of jazz hands, we're flinging fireballs. Exactly. And let's not forget the stunning art of God's Forge. It captures a world of dark, epic struggle. Yes, it's always a struggle deciding whether to wear the cloak of dramatic flair or the robe of very short destiny. And to top it all off, the second edition of God's Forge is here, along with two new expansions, Return of the Dragon Gods and Twilight of the Great Houses. Hold your magical horses. Two expansions. Because clearly one apocalyptic event just isn't enough these days. Two expansions indeed. So gear up, fellow spellcasters, and journey into the epic saga that is God's Forge. God's Forge, second edition, is in stock and ready to order now. Learn more at atlasgames.com. God's Forge! Or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But today, the lighting of the gaming hut is not the 1970s Sears light fixture. It's some sort of swinging bulb casting things into shadow and into brilliancy in a seemingly random alternate. Cigarette smoke coils through the air, and perhaps a couple of guys are going to come in with a gun. I hope so, because we need that gun for the game to happen, because we're playing a mystery game in the gaming hut. And we've talked a lot about mystery scenarios, but we have not necessarily put all of our assembled wisdom, and by our assembled wisdom, I mostly mean Robin's assembled wisdom, together. And we're going to do that now. Once more, looking at Robin's Adventure Crucible, his guide to building, to crafting, to designing role-playing game scenarios by their type. And the second classic type after the dungeon, which we did last time, is the mystery. And the mystery is born, obviously, with Call of Cthulhu, sort of throwing it out there and saying, go to everybody. But there's more to mysteries than just deep ones and a mysterious uncle. Is that not incorrect, Robin? There is more to them, but deep ones and mysterious uncles are definitely where it started. I guess before I move on, I will be remiss if I don't point out that you can find Adventure Crucible, which is a, a chapbook that I did for the Kraken Convention as a fundraiser for them at drive through RPG in PDF. Or there may still be some physical copies available from All Rolled Up. So, yes, we've talked about investigations a lot, but it's been a, at least a while since we've done a 101, and we haven't done a 101 
using the structure that I come up with in Adventure Crucible. So let's get to it. It's the most complicated traditional RPG structure. It's the second most popular structure for scenarios. And I guess we're going to start by looking at uh, why it is that it's tricky. But let's first of all, I guess, before that, define it, Mm -hmm. which is that the connective tissue that moves you through the various sequences of a mystery is a question that you are trying to answer. You may not really be fully aware of the entire extent of what that question is, but you know there's a question at the beginning and will move you to another scene where you will get more information and possibly learn about some danger. And you might decide to go over here for more information over there. It's uh, not necessarily a a one-to-one, you know, just railroad apartment full of clues, but eventually seeking out the answer to a mystery will lead the player characters through the story. The most classic mystery that you uh, will investigate is around a murder or the horrible mauling death of somebody by what's obviously a a monster. We don't want to get into the definitional questions of whether monster eating you is is murder or not, do we, Ken? No, I I feel like monstral jurisprudence is a whole different hut. It's a whole different hut, but it's not the only possible question that you could be answered. It could be one where you know who committed the awful thing, but you're trying to find where they are. So it's a fugitive hunt. Or you could have one where it's like, we need this particular item in order to do something. Where's the thing? The classic MacGuffin hunt. Slash treasure hunt. Slash treasure hunt. Uh, There could be some sort of, you know, emergency, some sort of horrible thing going on. And the thing you're investigating is how do we stop this? So that could be be like a time dilation anomaly on your starship. And that turns into a mystery. Yes. Or you could uh, be dealing with a uh, a hostage thing, a, a kidnapping. You're looking to, to rescue somebody from somewhere. That's another classic. That's the Orpheus myth, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or we're in a place that we're stuck in. How do we get out is also a mystery. And so that's a huge chunk of narrative. And in fact, if you look at a lot of procedural movies and television, they're very often run on exactly this structure. The thing that makes it tricky is that investigations have a double structure often in which to some extent, often to a, a really large extent, as in your classic murder mystery, sometimes just sort of off in the corner, you're trying to reconstruct a past series of events and find out what really happened. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when the monster crawls out of the uh, dumpster and drags somebody in, there's a story that starts with monster arrives in town, monster lives in dumpster, who brought the monster there, what is the sequence right. of murders, and so you're trying to reconstruct a series of monster eats attractive Canadians at the beginning of the show. Exactly. Yes. In a, the same pine forest that lots Mm. of monsters like to do that in. Yeah. Just stay out of the pine forest Canadians. Yeah. We got a lot of pine forest up here. (laughs) And that means that when you're crafting a scenario, you're crafting a double structure because you have the narrative of the antecedent action, the series of events that we just outlined. The thing that you're investigating basically. Yeah. And then there's, the investigation itself, the, the story that actually happens on stage as you are uncovering that other story. And sometimes it's even sort of backwards, right? That you start with the end of the antecedent action, the murder, and work backwards in time to figure out exactly what happens. And so that is a challenge in that you are trying in one way or another to set out the series of likely possible events in which the players actually do things and move through the mystery and figure it out. And also what the series of past actions are. And unlike 
almost every other scenario that we're going to talk about in this uh, series, it has to make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because the players have to know what's going on and put it together and figure out the details of the mystery. Whereas the great thing about, you know, a dungeon, it doesn't really have to make that much sense. You don't care. A chain of fights, you have minimal sense to get you from one fight to another. But because you're reconstructing a chain of events, that has to have a logic to it for the player's to investigate right to grog so there are different ways that once you're crafting a mystery scenario that you can get started you can start with you know the antagonist the bad guy the one who's responsible in some way for this mystery assuming there is an antagonist wants to uh, do something you could start with what is it that they want to do so you know they want to destroy tokyo or conquer jotunheim or summon an elder god whatever it is there's a goal that they're pursuing and they've got a series of events toward that goal you could go in the other direction. You could start with, what is the crisis? We've discovered a dead body, or someone has disappeared, or this valuable book has been stolen, and uh, work from that recent point in time backwards to, well, why would somebody do that? Mm -hmm. Either way, you complete the circuit and work out from one set of logic to the other what direction you're uh, headed in. And that means developing an antagonist plan. That's another thing that we've devoted entire full segments to in Mm -hmm. the past. But that's all part of basically developing the logic of how a mystery works, because you're basically, as you're moving through the bits of information to reconstruct what it is that they were doing, you need to be able to figure out what they wanted and why they would be doing all of these things in sequence. Yeah, it's basically, at its at its simplest, you've got a, not necessarily a braided structure, but a mirrored structure, because you have the bad guy s- deciding, I'm going to do a bad thing, going on and doing bad things until he does the one that attracts the player characters. Then the player characters move back along that trail until they figure out, you know, what is the inciting incident that made the bad guy start batting, or at least, you know, who is this bad guy? And, you know, they get to a sort of a beginning point. So you have this sort of mirror structure and you can vary it immensely as I believe we have several core books of information on, but that's, if you just think of yourself, not as, Oh, I have to build two stories, but I have to build one story reflecting itself. That may make it a little simpler. I don't say easier, but it may make it a little simpler to do for your first couple of mysteries. Right. And there are two different approaches that one of us favors the one and the other the other. There is the maze of clues, which is one in which the uh, so there's a lot of attention focused on the details of exactly scenes in which the investigators find the information. It lays those out for you. That's the one that I prefer because I think the people who need scenarios need guidance on that as well. Mm-hmm. And you prefer the ocean of clues, which is... Which is that the scenario or the milieu contains a lot of clues. The GM improvises the scene as players move through the milieu or through the scenario. So if they go to the, you know, dive bar, you know that, you know, there's, you know, a mob involved. And so you have a mobster in the dive bar and you set up that scene to provide that amount of information. So the GM has this stash of clues that they're passing out as the players move through the ocean, but the players ideally are entirely self-directed or at the very least are directed by clear in-game logic of run away from that guy or this guy's been awful quiet, let's hunt him down, as opposed to a thing where, uh, and again, for new GMs, I feel like if the players depart from a maze of clues in some fashion, and believe me, they will. New GMs might be a little more buffaloed at, at how to get them back on track without it seeming like you're just, you know, driving them back onto the train. 
Whereas ideally, if you have, you know, a, a bunch of clues that can fall kind of anywhere in the ocean, wherever the players go, they're still in the story. Right. And I think your preference as a GM depends on how comfortable you are improvising. Basically. Yeah. An issue that is not always in a mystery uh, scenario, but very often is because they are mostly horror due to, I think, the historical fact that Call of Cthulhu is the original investigative game is that you will have to deal with premise acceptance a lot that in the horror genre, the players love rejecting the premise and running away from things by realistically playing their characters as being scared. So one thing as a designer of a horror scenario, you're going to have to look for points where your players, despite years of training of trying to get them to, you know, play characters who want to be in a horror scenario or motivated to investigate, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to look at, you know, possible fail points where they just Oh, well, that thing that we're supposed to move toward is obviously horrible. Yeah. As a a 1920s hobo, I'm going to get on a train out of town. See you, suckers. (laughs) Yes. And so there's stuff built into most modern games to deal with that, but you're going to want to plug into that at any rate. Mm -hmm. One thing that's very strong about mysteries is that uh, mysteries bug us. They give us an emotional reason. Our wanting to find out what's going on is a very powerful emotional impulse, and it can drive the players through a scenario even more so than the sort of systematic compulsive grind of a a dungeon, you can feel your way through a story by wanting answers. And that's a a big impulse. And especially if the precipitating incident is something horrible, something that you care about having happen and want to bring somebody to justice that keeps the players and their characters engaged with the situation. Cutting to the fun is an important element of any scenario and the way to do that in a mystery scenario is just get them interacting with the mystery as quickly as possible and yep. cutting out all the, you know, the meetings and stuff at the beginning and, uh, you know, introduce a question and you're uh, on the road. Yeah. Don't say, wouldn't you like to go down that alley? Say, as you stand here in the alley, looking down at the eviscerated corpse, then yeah. move on. Yeah. Not do you get on the plane, but you're yeah. on the plane as it begins exactly. to crash as all planes in beginning horror stories do. As the time dilation anomaly begins. Right. There are two specific kinds of obstacles that are the bread and butter of the investigative game. The mystery, and this is the bit that's sort of new to Adventure Crucible, is looking at scenarios in terms of what their key obstacles are. And that is the barrier to information is the most important one. There's information you need to know, and there's a reason why it's hard to get it. And you overcome that need and then, you know, find out what to do. So that gives the players choices to make in deciding what bits of information to look for, and also in choosing what tactic they use to get information, whether it's do I try to blow the safe or do I try to carefully pick it, even though we're on time delay? So that's, uh, you know, the one piece of information, two possible ways of getting it. Or if it's a person that you need it from, it's like, well, what personality trait am I going to use or what negotiating right. uh, attempt am I going to? Am I going to bully them? Am I going to appeal to their, you know, uh, old gray haired mother? What? How am I going to get them to spill? Right. Now, the next part of any obstacle is what are the consequences for failing? Uh, and in a mystery, as Gumshoe fans know, the consequence for failing should never be failing to get the information. You want to find something that if you care about failure at all, and I submit that mostly you should not, you should put the failures elsewhere in your mystery, in your bits of danger and dealing with the bad guys and so forth. But if there is a, a consequence of failing to get information, it should be something else bad happens to you. So you you get the book, but you also get the horrible spirit that is attached to the book uh, pursues you. And you get the information out of the mobster, but he brings his other mobsters and says, punch those guys. They're nosing around. Right. And the rooting interest to any informational obstacle is 
self-evident. There's a question you want answered and you want that answered. And that's inherent to people as we, once we hear a question, once there's something we're not supposed to know, we feel validated by knowing it. And then we go back to the fact that many mysteries in role-playing are horror stories. And that brings in the scare obstacle as the other major building block of most uh, mystery scenarios. And that's the dilemma of that obstacle is you experience something awful and mm -hmm. then you have to deal with the consequences of that, whether it's the long-term mental consequences, whether it's uh, something that causes you to faint or to run away or to lose something. And by succeeding, you can keep going. And by failing, you suffer damage that makes it harder for you to go through the scenario. So it's sort of the, you know, basically it's a mental trap. Mm -hmm. So it's the same as a physical trap in D&D. And scare obstacles are also inherently emotional because it has an emotion in it. It has the emotion of fright. Yes. And it's yeah. they're the things that people will remember when you've run someone through your scenario or someone else has run through the scenario that you've created. And finally, there's a natural escalation. Mysteries have more of a obvious structure to them than the dungeon because as you get closer and closer to the mystery, you accumulate more of the story, you've put more of it together, and then finally you come to a point where you pull everything together and then you get to the final bit, the resolution, where it's the question is, well, now that we know, what do we do about it? And so that can lead to a fight. It can lead to some sort of plan that neutralizes the antagonist without a messy fight. You know, your classic calling up the FBI to, to uh, bring their submarines to fire at the Deep One colony. Or as in a lot of space opera, it's like a, it leads to a moral dilemma that you've got to deal with. Uh, perhaps a negotiation, which turns your adventure into sort of a hybrid of mystery and uh, and intrigue. And so that's basically, again, how investigations work and how you can sharpen your mystery scenarios. But it's the one that's the, the trickiest to do. It's the most intricate and requires that mirrored structure where you're thinking in two directions at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but likewise, I think that the payoff is so strong that again, you talk about your sort of lizard brain wanting answers. And so when you do get a payoff, when you do realize that it was, you know, the deep ones or old man withers or the vile baronet or whoever, you have a strongly emotional response that you maybe don't get from, oh, now I've killed the really biggest monster at the bottomest of the dungeon. That does give you an adrenaline sort of response as well. But I think that the mystery one sort of sticks harder, or at least it does for a certain class of of person or type of player which is why you know call of cthulhu took off gigantically in 1981 and remains a, a beloved and vastly successful alternative to DD &D, even all these years later when virtually every other you know DD &D rival has fallen by the wayside one way or the other um there is that drive to play horror mystery that it, once you slake it, you just keep wanting to come back because there's no hit like it. Right. Right. And as a scenario writer, whether for a convention or for publication, it is the structure that other GMs most need you to supply for them yeah, because, right. because it is the hardest to do and requires the most craftsmanship and logic. And since that sounds like a summary, it does logic dictates that we move on to the next hut. After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form. Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book, 
filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Bivey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling fog. Goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project, and deeper things stir further below in Axistoria. And finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in Boundary Waters. And my L.A. hardboiled detective Dex Raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance, leading to the house up in the hills. Takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in High Voltage Kill. And finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store. Or at the Pelgrane Press web store. It's time to smell the compass rose and also the smell of beautiful maps that we're going to lay out on the table. And this time around, we have a bit of a ecological spin to the cartography hut because we're going to be talking about biomes. So I think the hut might even have sort of piped in sounds of monkeys in jungles and perhaps antelopes running across the plain because beloved patron backer Joshua Randall says part of the fun of F20 is visiting the various biomes where the monsters live. That's the main thing about bios. They have monsters in them. Yeah, they do. Uh, The forest, the swamp, the tundra, the volcano, the desert, the jungle. At the same time, we are advised to start with Earth, which, of course, is the thing Ken always says. The question then for the cartography hut is where or when on Earth would you set an F20 game that is relatively close to as many fun F20-style biomes as possible? So let me just break from the question a bit to uh, that of the general listener, which is that some countries cheat this question because they succeed in having many biomes because they are very big. Because they're enormous. (laughs) Because they're enormous. And so Brazil, for example, all of our Brazilian listeners are going, we have biomes to spare, and they certainly do. Ample biomes. Ample biomes. They got your jungle. You got your scrubland slash thorny ground. You got your dry forest, your tropical or subtropical grassland, your savanna, your shrubland, your mangrove forest, your tropical wetland. Your swamps, your everything. You got everything. Your Andes. Yeah, but just like China, which has 16 biomes for your adventuring party pleasure, in both of these cases, your characters are going to spend a lot of time traveling between them. So we want to mention that there are places with lots of biomes, but also lots of travel time. But that's not quite Joshua Randall's question. So, Ken, you found some smaller places with many of these environments all crammed together. That would make wonderful settings for F20 games. And so I'm going from the small to the big, but even the biggest one is not super big. The smallest one that I found that's a proper, you know, dungeon map mashup, where if you saw it on a GM's table, you'd say, ha, that fellow knows nothing of real Earth science, is the Big Island of Hawaii, which, of course, is centered on some giant, giant volcanoes. But because the elevation varies so much, they get their jungle, 
but they also have snowy mountains and tundra up in the mountainous part between the volcanoes. They've got regular uh, deciduous and coniferous forests as they run up the, the hills. You've got a desert on the wind shadow of those gigantic mountains, as previously spoken. You've got a beach. It, it's Hawaii. You've got cliffs for falling off of or throwing things off of or having harpies or uh, stymphalian birds hanging out at. And, of course, you've got grassland. You've got the big rolling grassland and various sorts of low fertile hills to grow delicious uh, of, of fruit crops in for your simple elves and or halflings and or people to live at and be threatened by monsters from all the other biomes. So it's uh, it's really great. And it's in a very, very compact space. And you could either just take that, you know, geomorphically and then drop your standard D&D monsters into it, or you could sort of dig into Hawaiian legend and maybe populate it with some cool Hawaiian monsters. And then the ones from the, you know, from your F-20 bestiary that feel sort of Hawaiian. So uh, lots of Sahuagin and fire elementals and things like that, along with all of your actual Hawaiian monsters. And I think that would be great fun. Uh, slightly larger, and you might want to move it around in time a bit, Sicily Another relatively uh, navigable island. It's pretty small. It's big for a Mediterranean island, but it's small for, you know, a D&D world. In the pre-Roman times, it was very forested. They chopped a lot of the forests down to clear for cropland. It became one of the breadbaskets of the empire. And they also built a lot of ships using the Sicilian woods. But if you go even into Greek times, much less, you know, before, say, a thousand BC, you've got all manner of forests, both subtropical forest and conifer forests. You've got a volcano, Mount Etna, famous. You've got savanna uh, in the middle of the island. You've got snowy mountains all along the north and the south coast. You've got a beach at the mouths of the rivers. You have marshes. You've got cliffs. You've got a sort of a scrubland semi-desert, so you can put your thorns and your whatnot there. You've got lovely rolling hills for agriculture, and you have tiny islands off the coast of Sicily, each of which can hold their own monster and have their own sort of um, cliff and, and scrub tree sort of ecosystem, or you could even have a, a small sort of paradisical island with, with palm trees and whatnot, because you're far enough south, it being Sicily, that your proper deserted island from the Tempest is actually not that far away. And uh, Sicily makes a lovely place. Plus, you've got sort of a natural three corners, so you can have your three factions, which is the number you probably want in your F20 world so that everyone can keep them straight. Everything works really terrifically for gaming on Sicily. And if you set it in Greek times, then you've also got a built-in ginormous amount of politics and people who want to stab each other. And of course, you have the Greek mythology that you can populate Sicily with. Uh, in actual Greek myth, Sicily was full of monsters. And you can certainly, you know, stock as many more F-20 monsters in there as, as your little heart can stand. But Ken, what if I want to reskin my F-20 monsters as lemurs? Uh, lemurs, Robin? Well, you're in luck because you have the island of Madagascar, which is a little bigger, obviously, than Sicily or the Big Island of Hawaii. It's about the size of California or Sweden, but that's still pretty compact as F-20 adventuring worlds go. And Madagascar is uh, full of all manner of things, and being as it is the fragment of the lost continent of Lemuria, it not only is full of lemurs, but it also has weird new fantasy biomes. So in addition to your scrub forest, your coniferous forest, your jungle, again, there's a spine of mountains that sort of raises the um, elevation, so you can have all manner of different kinds of forests. They got their swamps, they got their deserts, 
They got their beaches. They got their tidal flats, some of the largest tidal flats in the world. So if you're looking for mud monsters, there you go. Savannas, gigantic cool cliffs, mountains and plateaus. Uh, their volcanoes are currently extinct or dormant, but that doesn't mean you can't activate them in your F-20 world. Just takes a bunch of fire elementals and there you go. The magma flows. Exactly. Let the magma flow. Um, lots of uh, volcanic fields with sharp, jaggedy rocks. But they also have acidic coastal lagoons, Robin. So you have coastal lagoons where the... the Am I going to have to save my against acid every time a monster hits me? That every time. Uh, unpromising. And there's going to be uh, probably like green dragons living in them. It's just a terrible place. Uh, fortunately, it's full of Lemurian artifacts. Oh, man. I hate being dissolved in acid, but I love Lemurian artifacts. It's, mm. the, it's this classic dilemma. It's a tale as old as time, or at least as old as Madagascar, as old as Marco Polo, saying, people have told me about this crazy island full of giant birds, but I don't believe it. And if you're an island too weird for Marco Polo to believe, you are a special <laughs> island. Throw that out there for free. And it has these weird cold water geysers that shoot these giant plumes of cold water. So given that there's volcanic fields, you could add regular old geysers if you'd rather burn people alive with steam. But I like the idea of cold water geysers being funneled up from some kind of ice giant cave or white dragon empire or something that's beneath the surface. So Madagascar, an island full of mystery and wonder, it had pirates on it, European and American pirates for a bit. So if you're looking for a way for your sort of Anglo-y fantasy people to show up there, they can be in a wrecked pirate ship that hits Madagascar. And then you just fill Madagascar, not with the good and uh, put upon Malagasy, but also giant, horrible Lemurian uh, psionic monsters from the id and uh, various dragons and pterodactyls and whatnot. Because again, it's Madagascar. It's full of everything. And another legend of Madagascar that is probably not true, carnivorous trees. So <laughs> probably not true. Probably not true. Well, I'm sure I mean, there's a carnivorous tree that like eats bugs, but carnivorous on our level that we have to worry about. That eats people. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's probably no triffids in Madagascar or are there? Dun, or dun, dun. There? Dun, 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 dun. Well, when we're beginning to tease carnivorous trees, which is a couplet, it's time <laughs> for us to head on out to see what the next cut is before I have to come up with another rhyme. Yeah, if we have a couplet, we know that that's the end of the scene. That's Shakespeare. Exactly. The Best of Asphageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by 
Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive-thru. Keep all of this podcast screens brightly lit by joining such heroic Patreon backers as... Tone Malazzo. Tenant Reed. James V. Nutley. Jason Kraus. And Jim Crocker. The elevated tone, the extended pinky fingers, the polite chit-chat, the two small beverage glasses tell us that we are in that most refined of huts, the culture hut. But we're uh, in a mid-century modern version of the culture hut, so maybe the glasses are full of uh, bourbon and rye. Might be some and we know they're cups. splendidly designed. There's, it's an innovative bourbon glass. For it sure. is. It's a wonderful bourbon glass. came out of uh, one of any number of uh, top-notch industrial design houses in America, Robin, in America, because <laughs> beloved Patreon backer Charles Picard wants to know, what sort of working did Charles and Ray Eames perform by creating the seven-screen film Glimpses of the USA and exhibiting it in a geodesic dome in Moscow in 1959? Robin? Well, the, the working, of course, is the meeting of classic design with lesser-known but still fascinating career in experimental film brought to us by Charles Eames, the architect and industrial designer, and... His later in their career uh, wife, Ray, uh, originally Kaiser, then Ray Eames, they worked together at uh, the Cranbrook Academy of Art, and they're most famous for the eponymous chair, the Eames chair, that Charles uh, worked on with the architect Eero Saarinen, and then Ray did some of the graphic design work. Her graphic design is also incredibly influential. And so when you hear of a, you know, a genuine Eames chair, that can be a MacGuffin in some sort of mystery because they're very expensive original mm -hmm. uh, chairs now. And so because they managed to design an industrial chair that could not be mass produced. So welcome to the mid century modern, everybody. There you go. Well, it was about <laughs> blending modernist aesthetics, but it also still took on a lot of the arts and crafts movement about yeah. it too. So it was about living in relationship to the industrial in a way that was not horrible and destructive. So their work has an elegance to it that, carries on the Art Nouveau and the Art Deco. And so mm -hmm. that means that there's something alive within the machine and with the, these designs that they uh, created. Yeah. Well, Eames was a very early devotee of Frank Lloyd Wright. He actually got thrown out of architecture school for going on and on endlessly about Frank Lloyd Wright. So on the one hand, that shows that he has super strong instincts. And on the other hand, it means that I will love and sympathize with him no matter what kind of nonsense he gets up to later. However, less famous now than their graphic design and, and industrial design was their career as filmmakers. And the interesting thing about the films that the Eames has put together is that they were on one hand, quite often done for corporate clients and by default, usually IBM. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they're formalist experiments that if they had been created independently and, you know, screened instead of in science centers being shown in, you know, little coffee houses, they would also be just as acclaimed as forebears of experimental uh, cinema. Yeah. And so they made 125 short films over their careers, often, commissioned, but they had a way of approaching commissions in a way that was 
uh, very artful and surprising. So one of the early films is about the Day of the Dead. We may get back to it that later when mm-hmm. we're adding workings to this. They did a series of five films for IBM called the Mathematica Peep Show, one of which, for example, is about symmetry. These films had a lot of influence, for example, on the little mini-movies that played in Sesame Street. So that's a, a thing where you may not know how influenced you are by the by the Eameses. And the most famous of their short films is one called Powers of Ten, which was done in much later in 1977. And if you've seen one of their films, you've seen this one. This yeah. is like a zoom out that starts with picnickers in Chicago, and it continues to slowly zoom out using animation, seamless animation, through different powers of 10, which are shown with squares, and the film basically zooms you all the way from picnickers to out through the solar system, out through the galaxy, past to the edge of the Milky Way, and to the point where the Milky Way is just a dot. And then it zooms back in, and and then once it reaches the picnicker again, zooms in on the hand and goes down through the body into the atomic level. And just like the film that we have been asked to talk about, it has a score by the acclaimed and very prolific and multi-stylistic Hollywood composer Elmer Bernstein. And that score for that is this early electronica score. So there's another element where uh, they also provided opportunities for their collaborators to really splash out, in this case, in in a musical form of modernism. But, Ken, the thing that we are here to talk about is glimpses of the USA. And you can find photos of this online with the seven screens. They're sort of a little rounded on the edges, and there's it's a row of four screens hanging over another row of three screens. And uh, on the surface, the, the working being worked, Ken, was propaganda to show the residents of Moscow just what they were missing by not being in America instead. Yeah, the, it, it was for what was called the American National Exhibition. Khrushchev, in 1957, had proposed that the two superpowers should put on a national exhibition in each other's countries, and the Soviets would exhibit in New York, and the Americans would exhibit in Moscow, and it would be a way for, you know, cultural exchange, but also for propagandistic bullying. And right. So, it's, it's like a bilateral world, world right. fair, basically. And so the Soviets showed their stuff off in a brand new auditorium in New York, and no one cared, and it was hilarious. And then we were given a vacant lot in Moscow and told, make what you can of it, capitalist pig dogs. And of course... Capitalist pig dogs, given a vacant lot, especially modernist capitalist pig dogs, slaver. And uh, they built a lovely fairground focused on a gigantic geodesic dome designed by the lovely Buckminster Fuller, who we've already done a segment on. It was run by the U.S. Information Agency, which is a theoretically independent bureau of the American government. It does its own propaganda, doesn't have to run it through state or defense, basically, is the difference. Yeah, because if the mission is... Brag about America. Brag about America. All Americans know how to do that. They don't need a org chart for that. Exactly. It's it's our natural birthright. And so they hired one of the best braggers about America, a guy named Jack Macy, who was the State Department exhibits officer who had done an American pavilion in a World's Fair in India. And it went over like a 
like, 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 like a, a hot dog with fireworks, like a hot dog with fireworks. It went over like that. And he hired industrial designer George Nelson to design it. And uh, George Nelson is another one of these sort of mid-century modern guys who designed a whole bunch of stuff that you've seen and held and used, but you don't know his name. And this, despite him putting his name on things that other people designed, which is the George Nelson way, apparently, but he recruited Buckminster Fuller and he recruited the Eameses to build out this gigantic funfair. In addition to the geodesic dome, there was another smaller geodesic dome and there was a sort of a, a curved glass building. Uh, it was nicknamed the Jungle Gym that because of the clever way that they did the internal design basically had the same square footage as about a city block's worth of stores. And then he went to every American company and said, put stuff in the Jungle Gym. And so they all did to show up the Soviets. The Levi's jeans, you'll be proud to know, Robin, were stolen by the Russians almost immediately. So was this the beginning of the love affair with Levi's or were they capitalizing on the pre-existing one? I think that they were capitalizing on the image of Levi's that had been created, you know, in the 1950s when Marlon Brando was wearing them, things like that. I don't, they may have loved Levi's when American sap heads were going over to help them build car factories in the thirties though. I mean, I imagine that that's a possibility. Well, that's another segment. Then. That we'll is a whole other segment. Later. But the larger point being that the Eameses were hired to do the big propaganda film at the center of this. I should also mention that the American pavilion, the American exhibition gave out free Pepsi, which was the beginning of Russia's love affair with Pepsi. And they had a, a computer an IBM Raymac 305, which was programmed, it says, to answer Russians' questions about America, which means someone had come <laughs> up with 5,000 questions and written the answers already and put them on punch cards. But Russians, uh, the most popular questions were, what do cigarettes cost in America? That was very popular. And another- And, very, and then like ChatGPT, it had the correct information. It had the correct answer. Well, it only had one answer. It was like a, a, a small learning model instead of a large language model. And they asked, what is the American dream? I, I do not have information on what IBM Raymac told them was the American dream, but I'm sure it involved freedom and lots of Pepsi. Lots of electricity for us computers. Yes. This American dream. The American dream to hold in IBM Raymac 305 in their hands and take instruction from it at all times. So, besides the oddly prescient IBM Raymac, there was this film, Glimpses of the USA, which is projected, as you say, on seven 20-foot by 30-foot screens that hung in the middle of the geodesic dome. Music is by Elmer Bernstein. It was 12 minutes long. There was like a two-minute intro where it's like, this is the stars, the same stars that shine down on Russia and America, and here are cities from the air. And it very politely says, you probably couldn't tell a Russian city from an American city from the air. Oh, I'll bet you could. And then it starts to show more and more American cities from the air, lingering lovingly on backyard swimming pools. And then it sort of hears um, standard Americans going to work for their workday or going to school. And then at the end, it was like, and here's Americans hanging out in the parks, eating hot dogs and drinking Pepsi on a weekend. And then it ends with fireworks because America. And so it was basically all of these images flashed, most of them still images. There's some moving images, but not a lot on these big screens. There is a clip from some like it hot. So at a crucial moment, Marilyn Monroe turns and winks to communism to send them into a frenzy. Yeah. One assumes take that Khrushchev. Yeah. To get Khrushchev. And it was a hit. It was a gigantic hit. 16 shows a day, 5,000 viewers per show. Uh, Charles Eames at the end of it estimated that they'd gotten like two and a quarter million viewers, which is a big chunk of the population of Moscow. Other estimates put it as high as 3 million viewers. But that's that by any standards is a big smash uh, success 
especially for a very experimental and not at all wildly, but very propagandistic film about America to be shown to a bunch of Muscovites. And it was a big hit. The American National Exhibition is most famous for the kitchen debate between Khrushchev and uh, Vice President Nixon that began in a sort of seemingly unorchestrated way in the model kitchen of the American model home. And then they moved it into the color TV studio and continued it in front of the TV cameras. And it was a uh, a big deal in sort of Cold War. So it was Nixon uh, demonstrating that he wasn't going to back down to a bunch of commies. And it was Khrushchev getting to score points on American TV. So everyone really won the kitchen debate. And it was sort of the most famous thing that happened at the American National Exhibition kind of overshadowed a lot of the other stuff that happened, which was mostly a bunch of Muscovites drank Pepsi and stole blue jeans and watched a cool 12 minute movie. Right. So is there anything that we have to explain? It seems like the esoteric is the exoteric here. Yeah, that it's propaganda. It created the love of Pepsi and fed the love of blue jeans and you know, obviously had a much bigger propagandistic impact on Russians than the other version did on Americans and goes to the advantage that democratic societies tend to have in propaganda, which is the propaganda is more fun. Yeah. It's lighthearted. It has Marilyn Monroe in it. Exactly. Appeals to what people actually want, as opposed to what the few bureaucrats approving it in a top-down system usually want. It speaks to the external, not the internal audience. Jack Macy, by the way, should get credit. Uh, USAI wanted to see the Eames's movie before they showed it at their pavilion, and the Eames's refused, and Jack Macy backed them up. So, good for him. Right. And so, that may be the other thing that Americans have. It's easy to cut out the uh, the commissars from the the equation. Yes. And, And just let's all have a moment of thinking would the commissars be cut out in a modern day glimpses of the USA? Now that we've made ourselves sad, let's bring up the cool <laughs> thing about Jack Macy, which is that he was a veteran of the ghost army, Robin. He was one of the guys who did camouflage and balloons and fake tanks and fake radio broadcasts to pretend to be an American army where there was no American army to mess with the Nazis. And he was there. I, I think you've read the the book of this. Yes, uh, this, of this uh, army. is something that's referenced in in the wars in the Yellow King. Is that mm-hmm. one of the possible squads that you might be as a French squad in this imaginary conflict that's based on the Ghost Army, and so you're involved in all of these strange, artful maneuvers that convince people that things that are uh, not going on are, and vice versa. And so. It's uh, very rich to see the literal foolery of the ghost army then transition somebody into a career in propaganda. Yeah, it's delightful. And so, again, uh, as you say, the esoteric and the exoteric are the same purpose. But if one wanted to sort of do a madness dossier type secret American meme warfare force, Jack Macy would be part of it. He would be part of it as the State Department exhibits officer. And the glimpses of USA would be the first attempt to detonate a mimetic bomb under the Soviet Union that would drive them into the arms of Pepsi and blue jeans. And And the seven screens means it's harder to decode. Exactly. Subliminal is uh, super subliminal. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to, you know, get mystical, you have seven screens because there's seven chakras and seven planets and all the other important stuff that, that is funneled into you by sevens. You know, the, the length is, is probably cabalistically set up or uh, set up with the advice of, you know, smart guys at MIT who are working in what will become known as cybernetics, which is 
Uh, how can machines influence people and how can people make machines be more like people? And maybe that's what the IBM Raymac is doing when it's not answering, you know, uh, how much for a packet of Marlboros. It's also tuning the mimetic broadcasts to specific types of audience. So someone writes in how much are Marlboros and then they program that one of the screens will show, you know, Marilyn Monroe smoking instead of winking. And that's going to get that guy to, you know, fall for American sleeper cell propaganda. The best kind. Well, this leads me to think that, you know, if it, is there a greater treasure than, than Pepsi and uh, IBM computers? Well, I believe there's a literal treasure waiting for us on the other side of this hair commercial. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the sourcebook for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to venture into the Elliptony Hut. This, of course, is the area that we sort of exists on the boundary lands of uh, sometimes it's paranormal, sometimes it's mere crack pottery. Uh, you can tell that we're in the Elliptony Hut because we're looking at the window. We're seeing the big alien, big cat uh, screaming out there. We've got the aliens over in the corner, the gray alien and the Nordic alien. They're drinking kombucha. And this time around, they're, they're a little checked out because we're going to talk about something that isn't explicitly paranormal in any way, but it definitely feeds into the whole legends of lost treasure and treasure hunts and people looking for treasure. And this is basically someone who fairly recently set out to create an analog of like the Oak Island mystery or other famous rumors of a treasure. Uh, often they're invented in the 19th century by newspaper men. But this time around, there's a real treasure placed by a real person, and there's some collateral damage involved in this story. And we're talking about the Fenn treasure. So, Ken, tell us about Forrest Fenn and his decision to put a literal treasure chest in a secret location. Yeah, Forrest Fenn, he's born in 1930. He was a Vietnam War pilot for the Air Force, flew 300 and some combat missions, left the force as a major with a silver star. When he was in Vietnam, he'd sort of taken up bronze casting as a thing that he did, and he got good at it because he didn't have a lot of other things to do in Vietnam besides fly combat missions, and, you know, every now and again he would get shot down. That would be a big moment of excitement, but mostly you're back at base doing bronze casting. So when he retires from the military, 
he goes to Santa Fe and buys into one of the biggest, most reputable galleries in Santa Fe that deals in Native American art mostly, but it deals in lots of other stuff. And it becomes the Aerosmith Fen Gallery. Right. And the word reputable shifts over time. Because yeah. It's associated with some forged paintings by Mendigliani well, and others. These, uh, these associations are post his buying out Rex Aerosmith. Aerosmith retires in 1973. It becomes the Fen Galleries. And I believe this is when the Modigliani bronzes that are not Modigliani bronzes begin to maybe show up. And I'm sure that... I don't know who else around here would know bronze cast. Would, would cast bronzes, not me. But uh, anyway, Forrest Fenn ran an art gallery, and I think that by now we can trust our listeners to understand that that means was a uh, sharper. And in 1988, however, he's diagnosed with cancer, and he starts thinking, maybe I should just take all my treasure and walk into the mountains with it. Because of course he loves the nature and whatnot. You live in Santa Fe, you can't help it. And uh, just die with my treasure like a Pharaoh and sort of pondering that for a bit. Then in 2009, he's raided by the FBI over the trade in looted uh, native American artifacts. He is never charged, but he has to give some of his artifacts to the FBI. And, and that is often the resolution of those cases. That is often the resolution. But in 2010, he recovers from his cancer. He's been talking all this time about, well, I'm dying of cancer. I'll just walk into the forest when it's my time. And then he recovers and it, it sort of feels like, well, now my cool plan can't work, but what if I do it anyway? And so he gets a 13th century treasure chest, a bronze chest lined with wood, and he starts filling it with stuff. And so he fills it with gold dust, gold coins, big gold nuggets, pre-Columbian gold animal figures, gems, Chinese jade carvings. Yeah, it's such an assortment of stuff that that had it, you know, waited for centuries to be dug up would have very much confused archaeologists. Would have blown people's minds. Yeah, so there's like a, a golden emerald ring of San Lorenzo is what it's called. There's turquoise excavated from a Navajo or Anasazi ruin that Fenn had apparently won in a game of pool, quote unquote. And... Lots of other cool stuff, and there's pictures of it online. You can look at it, but it does look literally like if you said treasure chest, that's what it was. There's like a big uh, torque or bracelet with cool dragon wings on it I can see in the picture. Gigantic gems. I assume many of them are sort of garnets, but there's definitely some rubies and emeralds in there. Yeah. When you think of a treasure chest in D&D, this is, this is it. This is the treasure chest, yeah. Plus lots and lots of American, you know, double eagle gold coins. Anyway, he walks off into the forest somewhere. And he hides it and he comes back and he publishes a book called The Thrill of the Chase, which is his memoir about a lifetime of treasure hunting and finding all this cool stuff. And then also there are clues in the book to where his chest is hidden, including a long and kind of terrible poem that I'm not going to read. So, Well, a poem can't both be good and full of geographical clues. Well, it can, but you have to be Shakespeare, I think. Right. And you have to put the clues in later. Well, what kind of treasure did Shakespeare hide? I ask you that. Yeah. You have to post hoc some, some clues if you're Shakespeare. So anyway, he puts out the book. The book is apparently put out, you know, the proceeds go to charity so that no one says he's running a scam. In a personal note, I think that I looked at that book in my most recent trip to a bookstore, to the uh, open books in Logan Square, Darcy holds it up and says, this book is crazy. It's full of weird stories. And I think there's poems in it. And I said, 
well, I'm not buying that. And so we moved on. Little did you know that Little did I know homework. that that was the thrill of the chase and it would have been very valuable to score on you for this show. But anyway, he then publishes the book and he, his assumption is that over a thousand people ran off and looked for the chest because he got at least 5,000 emails from people saying, I'm looking for your chest. And he assumes most people are full of baloney, which is not wrong. And five people died while they were looking for the chest. Yes, that's the especially that's dark the sad twist. part. Yeah. yeah, and and at least one of them died while while repelling while climbing. Even though it, the book assures people that they don't have to do anything physically dangerous and specifically don't have to climb to find it. Right. But I guess a number of people went. Oh, that means you have to climb to find it. Exactly. The pe- people at some point are going to you know get themselves killed in the wilderness one way or the other. But in this case, they were looking for a treasure chest. But in June of 2020, a guy named Jack Stueff found the chest in Yellowstone Park in Wyoming. And the exact place that he found it is still secret. Uh, Fenn and Stueff asked the head ranger at Yellowstone, can this spot where I hid the chest, can lots of people come to this spot and look at it without falling off a cliff or whatever? And the ranger said, that part of Yellowstone can't really take that kind of tourism. Let's just keep it between us. So... We don't know where in Yellowstone Jack Stuha found it, but he did found it. Fenn dies in September of 2020. He's like by then 80 years old or 90 right. years old, rather. So, And there's a couple of items that were supposed to be in there that when Stuha went through it, he said, wait a minute, where's where's this ring and where's this little pendant? And This little pendant. And the pendant turned out to be in Fenn's house he yeah. just forgot, oh, sorry, to, put I forgot it. to put that in there yeah so he gave, gave that to him as well but but the ring is is just le- legitimately missing no one knows what happened to the ring because of San it's the magical ring that'll come into the plot hook later okay exactly yeah. and jack stuff tried to remain anonymous but there was lots of nuisance lawsuits filed that sort of forced him to come out and say i found it i didn't work with fen fen did not try and mess this one weirdo up over by moving the treasure around and it you know it was a great deal of work, both emotional and physical, for Stuart to find it, but he did actually come up with it. At the time it was buried, the value was assessed or guessed at $3 million. The auction in 2022 of stuff from the treasure chest, and I don't know if it was the whole stuff, raised $1.3 million. So either there's $2.1 million worth of treasure out there, or journalists like to make things up. So one of those two is true. So hidden treasure... How to put hidden treasure in an RPG scenario, Ken? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let us stroke our chins and figure out how to do that. So, and, and this became the basis of a book, by the way, by Douglas Preston, one of his sort of monstery treasury books. It became a book. So if you want to know the laziest and easiest way to adventure by this book, read uh, the Codex by Douglas Preston. And there you go. You have it. Right. So another relatively easy scenario would be that the player characters are looking for an occult artifact that they need to, you know, thwart the esoterrorists or the yellow king or Cthulhu cultists. And then they discover, oh, well, yeah, the owner had that. And then he just put it in a treasure chest and buried it somewhere. And in this version, you have to uh, having the person who did that, you know, still be alive and available and able to tell you seems like uh, that's too easy. So maybe they're torn apart by the esoterrorists or the yellow king or the mythos cultists looking for clues. Right. So then it's up to you to uh, figure out from the uh, stilted poem exactly where the MacGuffin is before the evil bad guys catch up with it. And you can have all sorts of things going on in the forest because, of course, the presence of the artifact attracts uh, or perhaps even generates or creates the horrible things in the woods that are, in fact, responsible for 
having taken out all the other people who've been looking for yep. it all, all these years. Or they're ghosts. They're mad that they uh, are, they died. And they might not have died anywhere near the actual treasure, but mm-hmm. they migrate toward it after death and become its peeved guardians because they're not <laughs> able to file law- lawsuits anymore. So they do the second best thing, which is mess with your player characters. And then haunt people. It's slightly more productive. Yeah, you can also obviously have the treasure hunt be the MacGuffin that opens it as opposed to that leads you through it. You're off in the woods and you find this box and you open it and it's full of treasure. And oh my God, there's the ring of San Lorenzo is in it and it's full of dark magic or glorious potential. And now you are the target of all of these treasure hunters and ghosts and monsters. And you have to, you know, use the contents of the chest and some of them might be magical. Some of them are just a fist-sized gold nugget, which is always handy. And uh, you are trying to figure out what's going on while running away from the people who are chasing you. And maybe you have to leave the chest there because it's magically linked to the land and you don't know how to unlink it. Uh, all you can do is take the ring and run. Or, you know, you can carry the treasure chest with you, but you're now carrying a many pounds treasure chest along with you. The original is about 10 inches by 10 inches by five inches. So it's not gigantic, but it is full of gold. So if you imagine a large hardback book that weighs about 22 pounds, then that's how uh, convenient this chest is to carry around while being shot at by men in black. You could also have a situation where the chest is a red herring, where you are led to believe by the owner that he's put the magical artifact uh, in the chest when really the whole story and luring people toward it is all just to cover for the fact that he has, you know, offloaded it to this group or that group or is readying his own ritual. And so you can go off into the uh, woods, look for the treasure, finally find it, open it up, classic empty box situation. And then uh, you have to go back to the guy who, of course, has uh, managed to use the psychic energy that you generated as the last ingredient for the uh, awful thing that he's attempting to do. Yeah. He could just be uh, burying a real treasure, but he's doing it to create and harness and command treasure hunter ghosts that instead of being drawn to the treasure, he can command them with the Ring of San Lorenzo. And so when someone dies looking for the treasure or near the treasure or is torn apart by a, a owl bear that was summoned by the treasure, then their ghost you know, goes to his gallery in Santa Fe and he can command them to do things and work for him. And he's trying to build his own little necromantic empire, which might also be handy because people who are hunting treasure might know where other treasure is. And so our evil art gallery owner, our our wannabe necromancer slash gallerist is, you know, using these collector ghosts to get more stuff for his collection. And that's his goal. Right. And if he comes across more ghosts or treasure hunters along the way, a bonus. Mm-hmm. And he's got the ring of San Lorenzo to command them. And, uh, and if that doesn't work, other ghosts to, to beat them up. Well, now that we're surrounded by treasure hunter ghosts, I think it's time for us to back slowly out of this episode, but we'll be back with a new, perhaps ghost free, perhaps ghost filled episode a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astphagam. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Expend your treasure to keep this podcast going alongside such intrepid seekers as... Peter Williamson. Ryan Mannix. Scott Jones. Tony Kemp. And Alex Johnston. 
wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Present the gray alien point of view with our latest design. Nope, still not us. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>